Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of Feed the Fish. Uh, this this week we have a couple of things for you. We've got a couple of things lined up. And first we have a little bit of a story, uh, then we have our fact, then we have our discover segment. But without much ado, let's launch right into the story. I've always hated um, movies made of books. I found they never quite live up to the book. Uh, if you haven't read the book, normally movies of books are kind of average. Now those are harsh words, but you know, let me explain myself. When you watch a movie that's made from a book, people making the movie kind of assume you've read the book. Now, now this does happen quite a lot. I mean, I suppose the appeal of, you know, sort of the Lord of the Rings movies is that the book is so popular or the books, should I say, considering as it's actually a trilogy. Um, the Hobbit, for example, again, is that same kind of concept where they assume you've read the book. And, and it's a good assumption because the book is so wildly popular. But the thing is, if you haven't read the book, and these days that's most people's cases, uh, most people these days, I found, don't read books. Uh, they read articles, they read tweets, they read Instagram captions, I'm told, however, that I am one of very few people in the world who do in fact read Instagram captions, uh, which is a fact I don't believe. I think they are there for everyone to read and everyone probably does. But beside the point. If you haven't read the book, there are all of these Easter eggs in movies. Uh, they put lots of things in. They put little little hints at, at pages of the book, hints at scenes in the book. If they skip over something that was in the book, then they'll try and allude to it, perhaps, that it did happen, but just off-camera. And if you haven't read the book, you get none of those. So if you haven't read the book and you come to the movies, then you're kind of frustrated because it's almost like watching an hour and a half of in-jokes. If you have read the book, you'll probably leave mad anyway. And the reason why you'll leave mad is because if you have read the book, you know what really happens. These characters are new. You've met them all. Uh, you know every single one of them. You know their stories. Uh, you've been with them. You've been hovering over their shoulder or perhaps even seeing through their eyes for 200 odd pages. All of a sudden, it's a great shock when they don't behave as they should. And the thing is that you know it. Because with books, often you're brought into the characters' minds. Uh, you know their thoughts. You know what they are thinking. And movies don't really let you see that. It's very hard to see inside someone's head. Um, normally you do on medical shows, but that's about it. And even then, those episodes, most people look away. But what about a book movie? Can it be done well? Well, I think, I think the first thing that you need to realize about book movies is that, in fact, book movies are a completely different thing. They're a different medium. So the one thing a book's got is time. A book has 200 odd pages at maybe 200 words a page or 150 or however many words you put in a page. And a book's got time to tell you the character's thoughts, tell you what a character's thinking. You've got time too when you read a book. You can walk away, you can think about what a character said. You can pause, you can go away, you can come back and pick up where you left off. You can reread the last paragraph if you missed it. Now, movies don't let you do that. And the one thing movies don't have is time. They only have an hour and a half, which seems an awfully long time. 
And even if you're going to push on a sort of Avengers level movie and top the three hour mark, then, well, even then, that's not that long. If you think about how long most people spend reading a book, and I'm talking about actually reading the book, actually reading it, most people take a good deal of time sitting in front of the book and turning the pages. I'm not sure how long that is, I'm a quick reader, but I'm assuming it's not that fast. It's longer than three hours, I'm very confident in saying that. So movies don't have time, so they have to leave stuff out, or they have to compress it. Now, when you leave stuff out, you almost inevitably end up leaving out the stuff that's hard to film, but important for the book. That can be a disaster, because if the movie that you're making is following the plot of the book, and you take out something key to the plot of the book, then everyone who's read the book knows you've betrayed them. And everyone who hasn't read the book is confused because an essential piece of the plot is missing. It's a bit of disaster. But fortunately, Dune is not like that. And I must say, look, The Lord of the Rings did leave out Tom Bombadil and a couple of other scenes, but I felt those overall were decent. The Hobbit, however, produced so much stuff from the appendices and so much embellished from the appendices that in fact I felt the original story of The Hobbit was very much lost in a very different narrative, which really ruined those movies. Besides the point, Dune. Dune is a book movie in fact, possibly the very first book movie that I can wholeheartedly recommend. It does have its shortcomings, which I'll get to. Um, but I went to see Dune. I went to sit in a theatre, a movie theatre, and see it. And I think that was one of the first things that was good about my Dune experience. One of the things you need to know is that Dune is a movie with enormous scale. It has this tremendous scale, it has this tremendous size. And when you're reading the books, you get a little bit of a sense of it in the fact that, you know, when, when House Atreides leave Caladan on their spaceships, they go into this guild highliner, and the guild are these sort of... Um, if you think of normal-sized spaceships as people, a guild highliner would be the bus and the bus driver. It's enormous. And now, how do you convey that? How do you convey the size of that? Well. I think that's one of the things that Dune did exceptionally well. So there's several parts to doing the size of it. So the first thing they did is they would show you this very wide shot. Uh, it'd be incredibly wide and you'd see this enormous object and you'd be like, oh, you know, that's pretty big. And then at one of the scenes at the start, it's even in the trailer, so you see it, so I'm not spoiling anything. Um, you see this little sort of full stop sized ship come out of the big ship. Now, I'm watching this in a movie theater, so a full stop-sized chip is pretty tiny. Anyway, this little, little speck drifts down to the planet's surface, and there you see the sort of uh, entourage of Duke Leto and his, um, his fellow friends, and they're all there, and they're looking up, and the speck appears and lands in front of them, and it is this whopping 10-story behemoth it's not small at all. And all of a sudden, that actually impacts everything because now you realize just how big the planet is. You realize just how big the big ship 
that that little ship came out of is. And all of a sudden you have this jaw-dropping sense of scale. It does it well with other shots too, when they're on Dune and they're flying in the... What are they called again? What are these kind of helicopter things that are a bit like a cross between a helicopter and a dragon, dragonfly? Uh, they call them thopters. Maybe it's ornithopters. I can't recall. Anyway, so they've got these thopters and it's almost like a cross between a helicopter and a dragonfly and they carry sort of one to two people but they're a bit more spacious on the inside than they look. They've got a little bit more room. They're little helicopter things. And they're flying out into the desert and first you see the dunes and you're like, oh, that's, that's fairly standard desert. And you see this little insect crossing the dunes. And it's not an insect, it's these little helicopter things which you thought were rather large in the last scene. Uh, the sense of scale in Dune is just incredible. And it's part of what makes it such a great movie because it really instills in you a feeling of helplessness at the size of Dune. Arrakis is an enormous planet. And part of the, part of the tension, part of the stress in the book is, is that Dune is so dangerous. Arrakis is a deadly planet. Uh, the planet will kill you because there's this hostile environment. It is this unsurvivable desert wasteland. And to convey that in a film, well, you know, <laughs> it's all too easy to make it look like a beach holiday. And Denis Villeneuve's film doesn't do that. It portrays with great grandeur and the proper amount of trepidation the sheer scale of the planet of Dune, of the planet of Arrakis. It's absolutely fantastic. And you really do get a sort of jaw-dropping sense that this planet is truly deadly. If not, if not the desert, if not the heat, if not the Fremen, if not the worms, well, the sheer distances will kill you because you can't survive covering the ground. Dune gets scale right. What else does Dune get right? Compression. Now by compression, I mean that when you've got a long, big book, there's only so much you can put in a movie. And so you have to leave things out. Now I will give you an example, and this is a spoiler warning. So if you haven't read the book by now, um, it came out quite some time ago, so may I recommend that you do that. Um, and you want to get about halfway through the first book, uh, I think it's just Dune, and if you're halfway there, then that's what the film covers, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. Alright, spoiler warning, appropriate pause for people to scramble and find their copies of Dune, and hopefully in the last few seconds they've caught up. So when Lady Jessica and Paul are found by the Fremen on the crater, they're standing there, they are looking around, they're nervous, it's night time. They hear the voices of the Fremen around them and discover that they're surrounded. Uh, Paul rushes one of them, called Jamis, takes his weapon, it's like a little blaster thing, scampers up the rock, uh, and, and they're basically, eventually, Jessica overpowers Stilgar, the leader of this pack of Fremen. Uh, Paul comes down from the rocks and gives um, gives the blaster back to Jamis, but Jamis is upset, he's offended, because, because Paul's just this child, he's this teenager who's bested him, a grown man, a professional warrior, um, this man is a Fremen, he's a tribesman, war, 
warrior ways are part of him. He's one of the fiercest fighters of the tribe. And he, he's been embarrassed in front of everybody by, by this young whippersnapper. And, and what happens in the book is that they continue on their journey. They get to a cave where they rest for the night, for the day, and then before they travel the next night to the sands, too hot and too dangerous during the daytime. But anyway, they're in this cave and they're resting at their sort of halfway stop between, between where they were found and Siech Tabor, which is um, Stilgar's uh, home base. And there Jamis challenges, um, challenges Jessica, Paul steps in as her champion, and they have a fight. Now, that's a lot of traveling, that's a lot of going on. How do you cover that in a movie? How, how, do, you, how do you compress that scene? So what Dune did with that particular scene, this is just one example of many, is what they did was they compressed those many moments into just one. So they're discovered on the crater, they're surrounded by the Fremen. Paul bests um, Jamis, Paul climbs up the rock, Paul comes down the rock, but then immediately Jamis challenges Paul and they have their fight. And I think that was quite an important thing there because it was a good way to compress the moment. And um, Stilgar's body is wrapped up in some kind of shroud and they carry it with them. I am still interested to see whether they do this right that they do. So they have this right um, where what they do is the Fremen basically say, you know, I'm a friend of Jamis. And then they take something that used to belong to him. And basically everybody needs to do it. And it's this really important scene in the book because it's Paul's first time killing a man and over Paul's head is always this sort of danger of sparking off this incredible jihad. Uh, it's, it's a long story, all right. Um, I can't go into all the details, otherwise I'll be here all day. And so will you. But in any case, so it's this big deal for Paul and Jessica has to sort of be harsh with him and be like, oh, do you feel proud of yourself now that you've killed a man? And it's important for Paul as well to to really see the humanity of Jamis and to identify with that and to to say he's killed a man. It's not just an enemy. It's not just someone out there. He's, he's killed a fellow human being. He's done this thing. And to recognize Jamis as a person, not just as some indistinguishable and indefinite enemy, but as, as, as a solid, firm person with a family and everything is hugely significant for Paul going forward. And it's a significant moment for us as as the readers or the viewers as we watch that. So I'm hoping that that scene where they have the sort of memorial service for Jamis does come up in the second movie, uh, which hasn't yet been confirmed. And I think this is the weakness of Dune uh, as a movie. It's Dune Part 1. Now, this is an unfair accusation because it's only the first part. I mean, you can't really compare and complain if you haven't gotten further in the story. But I think that is part of the problem, is that the first half of the movie, up to the betrayal of the Duke, is absolutely exceptional. It really is. And it would have done well, I think, to climax and end with Paul and Jessica escaping from the city, stop. Because I think already the start of the new story with the Fremen is almost a new birth, a new beginning for Paul. Uh, merely knowing that he survived would have been enough for Cliffhanger to, to be there for 
a second movie and it would have saved some runtime. And I think while what we did see of Paul's journey through the desert in the middle of the night, his meeting with Liet and eventually winning over the Imperial Planetologist, that was exceptional. Um, I felt especially the Sardaukar attack there is, is incredibly well realized. Um, I think one of the great things about this movie is just, just as a side note, is that so many of the pieces of the set work are descriptive enough. I mean, when you, when you are imagining a world, when you read, you are constrained by the limits of the author's words. I mean, if I tell you that in a hole in the ground there lives a hobbit, not a damp, dark, smelly hole, if you're filming, now you can't put that hobbit in a damp, dark, smelly hole. That's that's ruled out. Everybody will know, first scene, opening, that you've never read the book and you've got no idea what you're talking about. And what Dune does so well is it stays within the incredible constraints of Frank Herbert's world. And it's able to create something that is somehow oddly in line with your imaginings. It's accurate. Well, okay. I think we've done with Dune. I think, oh yes, I was going to say that the weakness is, of course, that we don't have a second movie yet, but I think, you know what, I'm quite looking forward to it. I think the second movie, oh, good grief, second movie, now I'm making mistakes, but the second movie will be great. But the second part of our podcast, a fun fact. So, I was listening to this podcast um, called No Such Thing as a Fish, and there's no affiliation. I didn't get my podcast's name from there, in case you're wondering, um, because they've been around longer than I have. I, sh- I should have, I should have, you know, tried to do some kind of copyright claim. Be the only fish in town. It'd be quite funny. And be the shark. No, I don't feel like being a shark. I'm, it's more like a goldfish on my podcast art. In any case, anyway, so they have this. They are the QI Elves uh, in the UK. There's this television show, and it's by the BBC. And basically, it's a quiz show, but you don't necessarily get points for being right. Uh, you get points for being interesting. And you lose points for landing on these trigger words. So there'll be like four or five things you're not allowed to say every episode. The contestants, of course, do not know what these words are. And as they go, then they must be interesting and share facts around the answer. And their job really is to be interesting. But if they land on one of these sort of forbidden words, uh, let's say you're doing a, um, an episode of D for dogs. It's all alphabetized. Um, so the series will be D, and then there'll be an episode on dogs, an episode on dragons, an episode on, um, well, I don't know. But but that's not the point. On drawers, I don't know. So, this show produces and requires a lot of facts. And so they have a team called the QI Elves who produce these facts. They They don't make them up. Instead, they find them. They are fact hunters. They do this professionally for a living. This is their love. This is their task. And they have this podcast uh, called No Such Thing as a Fish. And every week, the podcast episode has a slightly different spin on that. It'll be No Such Thing as a Talking Japanese Bath. uh, No Such Thing as a Dinosaur in Tights or whatever. I mean, I'm just making up random podcast names, but those are totally believable because those are exactly the kind of names they come up with. And how they run their podcast is that each week they have facts, and there are, I think, four or five of them, and they all share a fact in the episode, and they talk about it. And one of the facts from this week's episode was entirely peculiar, and I loved it. It was curious. Uh, 
So I did know already that in the States, you can't own a bald eagle. But what I didn't know is that in a nondescript street in Denver, there is something called the National Bald Eagle Repository. What is that, you may ask, and what is it for? Well, they receive a large number of FedEx orders. Uh, they, they get bald eagles FedExed to them. So when you find a dead bald eagle, uh, what you do with it, uh, you could throw it on the trash heap. Or, as per the instructions on the Bald Eagle Repository site, you can double bag it, send it frozen. If you send it in a cooler box, they will send the cooler box back, don't worry. Um, you are not supposed to put ice or gel packs with the dead bird, and you are to FedEx it to them with um, overnight freight, and they keep hundreds of thousands of dead bald eagles. Now, you might be wondering what they use them all for, and it turns out they're somewhat of a mail order service for various, um, various tribes in the States. So, you know, Native Americans have these ceremonies with bald eagles. Now, it's quite hard to get, a, get hold of bald eagles. Uh, you're not supposed to own them, let alone kill them. And so you can imagine that if you need to find some bald eagle feathers, it could be a tricky job. But no longer. If you're one of uh, several, I think it's just over 100 or just under 200 uh, recognized Native American tribes, then you can call the Bald Eagle Repository and they will send you an eagle or an eagle kit. They'll send you, maybe you need a wing, a talon, a, a beak or claw. Uh, they will send the parts and you will have those parts for your ceremonies. I thought this was fascinating, if not a little morbid. Um, and now, on to our final part of our podcast, Discover. What is there to discover? Well, I think, seeing as it's what is called Techtober, it would be appropriate to talk about a tech YouTuber. Now, why is it called Techtober? Because just about every year, just about every big sort of technology company releases some kind of new product in October, whether it's Apple launching MacBooks or iPads or what have you, uh, whether it's Google launching their new phones, whether... It is somebody else launching something else. I think DJI just launched a new gimbal camera combo thing. It's kind of like a camera and a gimbal all rolled into one. But anyways, Techtober is called that because so many people have tech launches. And it's hard to navigate. It's hard to know what tech is good, what tech is bad, and what it even does. Um, if you want to buy it, or if you absolutely don't, if you at least want to sound intelligent when everyone else talks about it, uh, you'll need a trusted source. And so what I generally enjoy doing is, and so I watched a photographer called Peter McKinnon. Uh, many people do. He's one of those people who you can look for, look up on YouTube on a first name basis. Uh, so he's, he's relatively famous. But anyway, he's got a friend called MKBHD. Uh, now that is a mouthful of a name, but actually it's not, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's M-K-B-H-D. And this fellow has the specialty. His full name is Marquez Keith Brownlee, the M, the K, and the B. And then he does HD videos, so M-K-B-H-D. And he does high-quality tech reviews. Now, I mean this in every sense of the word. In the first sense, his tech reviews are top-notch. He'll spend time helpfully and handily explaining things to you, 
explain why they work, how they work, who they're for, what they're for, what's good, what's bad, all of those important things. But they're also high quality because he has very high quality cameras. He shoots on red cameras, uh, not the color red, the brand red. Uh, the color red cameras, well I don't know how those perform, but the brand red, uh, those have been used to shoot uh, movies and series, they often shoot for Netflix, many Netflix series are shot on red. I'm trying to think of some now, but I don't want to be don't want to be wrong, and so I will instead leave it to your imagination or to your curiosity as to which Netflix shows are shot on red cameras, in case you're wondering the other sort of big brand is Ari, and they produce, not Harry, Ari, and Ari with A-R-R-I, not Harry, unlike Harry Seldon from Foundation, H-A-R-I, or Harry as in the Prince, um, H-A-R-R-Y, it's none of those Harrys, it's Ari. Anyway, so that's the other sort of brand, and Ari's famous for their film cameras, um, I think they're famous for their Ari Alexa line, and they also do these lights, which are just unbelievably powerful, but that's not the point. So MKBHD makes, makes these fantastic YouTube videos, and if you're curious about any new products that come out this month, and many have, then go and give him a follow and have a look at his channel. It's particularly interesting, and I'm actually currently waiting to have a look at his new review of the M1, well the M1 Pro, which is uh, the 14-inch one. I'm looking to get a new computer. I'm quite keen on that. It'll be exciting, and yeah. So, yeah, a lot of other YouTubers have already got theirs out, but MKBHD also plays Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, he recently came second against New York, and he's just got back to the office yesterday. Um, Twitter's a very informative place, and so. I'll see his review when it comes up. But anyways, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to another fantastic week. And I'll see you next week for another episode of Feed the Fish.